We're going to be looking at the, at the tail end of Jesus' prayer in John 17. And this is the, uh, the night before he gives up his life for sinners. Uh, to this point in his prayer, he has prayed for the church's preservation. Uh, he's prayed for our protection. He's prayed for our holiness. Last week, uh, we saw him praying for our unity. Today, we look at one last prayer that he makes for the church's future. I want you to sense the importance of Jesus' prayer for our future. If we just step back for a minute and remember the situation, it's rather bleak for the disciples. If all that defined them was the darkness of their sin... And present circumstances, it doesn't look so great. If the darkness that they face is, is, is all there is, then their traject- the, the, the trajectory for their lives uh, isn't very hopeful. The end doesn't look very glorious. Uh, there's a sorrow that's beginning to settle on the disciples because of all of the uncertainty in the air with their Lord and Master fixing to leave Uh, They will weep and lament over his departure. Jesus uh, promises the world is going to hate them if they keep following him. Uh, The devil, the devil himself is going to be all over their case, threatening to undo them, to destroy their faith. Jesus says they're going to face trouble in this fallen world. And before that, Jesus had exposed the disciples' own frailty. They're going to leave him when things get rough. Sort of exposes the residual unbelief in their hearts that even though they're following him, it's still there. And if only these things set the trajectory for the disciples' lives, they're they're really without hope. Their future is bleak. And I imagine some of you can identify with them. You, you trust in Jesus, you, you've given him your life, you, you look to follow him daily, but, but then there's the daily struggle against sin. Sins keep rising to the surface, particular sins that, that you wonder if you'll ever defeat. You're tempted by the powers of darkness. Some mornings you wake up distraught. Gray clouds uh, follow you throughout the day. You've drawn near to love others just as Jesus told you to. And you've gotten hurt in the process. It's not just that you sin against others, but that others sin against you. And in addition, you're surrounded by a culture embracing a moral vision that will soon test the genuineness of your faith, and and you wonder if you're going to make it. News media spreads fear of economic failure, of widespread disease, of rumors of war, and your own mortality stares you in the face. If only this darkness determines where, you're, where we're heading, then our future is truly dismal. But Jesus' prayer makes very certain that if we belong to Him, the darkness is not what determines our future. 
The darkness of sin, death, and the devil does not determine our future if we are trusting in Jesus Christ. And the proof of that is found in Jesus' prayer. In this prayer, Jesus runs us all the way to the consummation of the ages and shows us what the church's future is. And despite the sin remaining in you, despite what the world is going to throw at you, despite what the devil will tempt you with, God is determined to bring all of his church to glory with Jesus. The forever enjoyment of Jesus' glory is our future. And the darkness can do nothing to stop the triune God from getting us there. And that's what Jesus' final prayer is about. Let's read this prayer in verse, starting in verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me... He's praying for the church. These are the ones he's given to his son... I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. The forever enjoyment of Jesus' glory is the church's future. I want to bring this together for you with just four observations. Uh, Number one, Being in Jesus' presence is our future. Uh, We should remember Jesus plans to go away. He entered this world in obedience to his Father's will. All that the Father gave him to accomplish, he's fixing to accomplish in his death and resurrection. And then he will, when he rises from the dead, he will then ascend back to the Father in glory... And he won't be visibly present with the disciples who are on earth. They'll still be in the world while he's in glory. But this separation from Jesus' visible presence won't last forever. Jesus' prayer in verse 24 ensures us of that. He says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. And this, of course, is a reference to the, to the future glory coming with God's final kingdom on earth. If you, if you recall, he began comforting his disciples with similar words back in chapter 14. At the beginning of chapter 14 there, he says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would, have told you, uh, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, meaning at his second coming. I will come again and will take you to myself. And get this, that where I am, you may be also. That where I am, you may be also. Now, if you opened a book one day and, re- and the cover page read, How to Make a Cake. 
And then you flip to the back of the book and some of the last lines read, and that's how you make a cake. What do you think the book's about? How to make a cake, right? Everything we've been learning from Jesus in chapters 14 to 17 falls between these bookend remarks that where I am, you may be also, and that they also may be with me where I am. So what do you think all of chapters 14 to 17 have been about? They've been about God getting us into the presence of Jesus Christ in final glory. Jesus' life on earth, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, the sending of the Spirit, the peace that he brings, the true vine that gives life to his branches, our election, Jesus' fulfillment of Scripture, the preaching of the gospel, spreading to the world, the Father's protection, our sanctification. Everything we've been talking about for months is about how God gets us into the presence of Jesus' final uh, glory. And this, of course, brings us face to face with the ultimate blessing of the gospel, what we call the good news, namely our total reconciliation with God. The Bible says that since Adam fell into sin, humanity has been been separated from God. We were made to walk with our maker in perfect intimacy, but our sin keeps us separated from him. Again and again, the Bible highlights this problem. But that's not all the Bible says. The Bible also proclaims a God who reconciles people to himself. The Bible proclaims a God that pursues sinners with grace when they only deserve punishment. It proclaims a day when God would put away the sin that separates his people from him. It proclaims a day when God himself would act to make people his own. A day when when he would dwell in their midst with perfect intimacy. A day when he says that they shall be my people and I shall be their God. A day when a people would fill the city of God, as Ezekiel explains. and, And the name of that city would forever bear the title, the Lord is there. Meaning, there in the midst of his people. And here we come to a gospel in which Jesus Christ has been revealed as God himself come in the flesh. And he's heading to the cross for our forgiveness, to to forgive the very sins that separate us from God. And here we find him praying what the heartbeat of God's redemption story has been all along, that, that all God's people might be with him. There are many wonderful blessings that come with knowing Jesus Christ, like the removal of God's wrath and the escape from hell and the forgiveness of our sins and the cleansing of a guilty conscience and the gift of Jesus' own righteousness cleansing us. Liberation from sin's enslaving power, the hope of resurrection, the inheritance of heaven. But none of these blessings are ends in themselves. None of them can be called the ultimate good of the gospel, even if they are really good news. They're all serving the highest good of the gospel, namely intimate fellowship in the very presence of God himself, revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. All of redemptive history is barreling forward to this future day for the church when we will dwell in the presence of God revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. This is Jesus' will and determination as he heads to the cross. 
Number two, seeing Jesus' glory will be our delight. Seeing Jesus' glory will be our delight. Jesus wants us to be with him because he wants us to see him as he really is. Look at the way he says it in verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. And here's the purpose, to see my glory that you have given me. Now, it's true throughout John's Gospel, the disciples get glimpses of Jesus' glory. Uh, he does things like change water into wine and, and uh, raise Lazarus from the dead. And, he, and in each of these cases, the, the, the Bible tells us they, they see Jesus' glory. And then we're even taught to view Jesus' cross in the same light. That one of the most profound displays of God's glory is in the wretched shame of Jesus' crucifixion. It's there in Jesus' death that God shows his greatness in saving sinners. So based on what John sees, he has every right to start his gospel off with these words. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We have seen his glory. But without taking away from any of that, the glory Jesus speaks of here is different. The glory he speaks of here is the same glory he mentions back in verse 5, chapter 17, verse 5. Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Glory that I had with you before the world existed. That's not to say Jesus somehow lacked glory when he became a man. And now he just needed more of it. It's just to say that at least for a time, Jesus set aside his right to be seen as glorious. That's what happens when in the incarnation. When he comes, becomes a man, he doesn't give up glory. He lays aside his right to be seen as glorious. He didn't come to earth wrapped in his regal beauty and unveiled splendor. His glory was hidden for a season. He came as a servant. But once he finished his work as servant, God then vindicates him to glory, and he's now wrapped in glorious majesty to be seen as he always has been. Only now, with his human nature intact. And the Bible isn't silent about what his glory is like. The glory of God, we talk about it a lot. We can think about it in terms of when it's when God's intrinsic worth goes public. It's the visible manifestation of all of his perfections. And there are occasions 
when God pulls back the curtain, so to speak, and and gives the saints visions of Jesus' glory, both before his incarnation and after. Isaiah sees Jesus' glory. John tells us this in John chapter 12, verse 41. But Isaiah, he sees Jesus' glory. When God gives him a vision of, of his kingship in the heavenly temple... In Isaiah 6, Isaiah sees the Lord, Jesus, sitting upon a towering throne. And the train of of his robe fills the temple. And the idea being that that Jesus is so majestic, Isaiah simply stands in awe of the hem of his garment. He can't even get to the throne. It's the hem. I'm as amazed by the hem of his garment. Above him stood the seraphim, these fiery angelic beings, each having six wings. With with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he would fly. And one seraph would cry out to the other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Ezekiel sees Jesus' glory. Again, in a vision of the throne room. He sees the likeness of a throne. And the appearance of the throne is is like sapphire, this this radiant blue beauty. And seated above the throne was a likeness with a a human appearance. And and upward from from what had the appearance of his waist, he he sees, as it were, gleaming metal like, like the appearance of fire that enclosed him all around. And then downward from what had the appearance of his waist, he he sees, as it were, the appearance of fire. And there was rainbow-like brightness all around him. And Ezekiel falls on his face because of it. And then, of course, we have John writing similarly in the book of Revelation. But now this same glory that Isaiah saw and Ezekiel saw, now this same glory shines from a man. The God-man. The Son of God who took on flesh. And as John walks us to the throne, he can't help but see every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth bowing in worship. Myriads upon myriads and thousands upon thousands of angelic hosts praising and serving Jesus. And as he walks you closer into the throne, he sees the 24 elders surrounding the throne... And even closer, the four living creatures with numerous other angelic hosts never ceasing to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And worthy is the Lamb. And as he looks upon the glorified Jesus, he can't help but see what David says always exists at God's right hand. Pleasures forevermore. Fullness of joy. The throne is wrapped in rainbow-like emerald beauty with jasper and carnelian decorating the royal majesty. Many diadems are on his crown, a golden sash across his chest, hair like wool, much like the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7. He has eyes like flames of fire. His face shines like the sun in its full strength. And in fact, his glory is so brilliant, so self-sustaining that there's no need for sun or moon to shine in his kingdom. 
And when John hears him speak, it says his voice is like the roar of many waters. In other words, he puts Niagara Falls to shame. He carries all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, Paul says, honor and power. The fullness of deity dwells bodily in this man, Jesus. He, he dwells in unapproachable light with springs of water never ceasing to give life to all the nations who come to him by faith. This is the glory that Jesus prays all of his church will see. This is the experience of glory he came to give us by giving up his life for us. This is why he set aside his right to be seen as glorious for a season. That we might get to enter his glory. The disciples only saw Jesus' glory in veiled fashion. And even now we only see Jesus' glory. In veiled fashion. We, we read God's word. And behold Jesus' glory by faith. But not yet by sight. Even Paul says that now we see only through a mirror dimly. But Jesus wants us to see him face to face. He wants all his people enjoying his magnificence. This is his prayer in going to the cross. Oh, the gratitude that we should feel over the cross, which enables us to enjoy this glory. The cross wins for us this future hope if we trust in the Lord Jesus. Number three, God's triune love is the foundation of our future. God's triune love is the foundation of our future with Jesus. Look at the, uh, the way uh, he, he describes his glory at the end of verse 24. It's, it's a glory he has because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So Jesus has this glory because the Father loved the Son before the foundation of the world. And we might ask this question, what was God doing before he created the universe? According to verse 24, loving himself. For eternity, God has existed as one God in a trinity of persons. He has always existed as a relational being, Father, Son, and Spirit sharing the divine essence, but each relating to each other in their complementary roles. And this inner relationship between persons of the Godhead is, is one that's characterized by love. We can say the Father's love for us had a beginning. But we can never say that the Father's love for the Son had a beginning. Father and Son forever existed in a relationship of love. And what Jesus brings out here is that this triune love expresses itself in mutual glory. I remember when Wes preached on this several years ago. 
That this triune love expresses itself in mutual glory. The Father clothes the Son in glory because the Son is His delight. It has been this way since before the foundation of the world. And it will continue to be this way into the future. Jesus' glory will never fade because it proceeds from the Father's eternal love for His Son. Jesus' always being glorious as Son is bound up with the very being of God Himself, who is love. That's an unshakable foundation for your future. And then get this. This eternal triune love that never had a beginning and will never have an ending, we actually get to share in its wonder when we're brought into the presence of Jesus. And here's what I mean. Look at verse 23. Verse 23 at the end says that the Father loves us even as He loves the Son. Isn't that a remarkable claim? That's how comprehensive Jesus' cross work is. The Father loves us even as He loves the Son. To become a Christian means you're so united to Jesus by faith that for the Father to love His Son is for the Father to love you as He loves the Son. And then more than that, by the end of verse 26... We get this, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Again, this is totally remarkable language. The goal of all Jesus' ministry is that we love Jesus with the same love the Father has for His Son. You can't fully comprehend that right now. Your body can't handle it. You need a new body to comprehend this. But the day is coming when God will do this in it. And He's already work, He's already at work fitting you for this day if you belong to Him. So what we get when we pull these things, these threads together, God's love for God plus God's love for us means God's love for God in us. That's where we're going. That's the trajectory we're on, that we might love Jesus as the Father himself loves Jesus, that that love might be in us. It's no wonder that Paul would write later, oh, that that we might have strength to comprehend with all the saints 
what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. We need strength to comprehend this love. So this triune love is the foundation of, it's an unshakable foundation for our future delight in Jesus. And lastly, number four, triune resolve guarantees our future. Triune resolve guarantees our future. Here's how we know we're going to make it to the forever enjoyment of Jesus' glory. Uh, We know from other places in John's gospel that the Father always reveals his will to the Son. And we also know that the Son only speaks what the Father commands him to speak. We shouldn't think anything less when we come to Jesus' prayer. He is praying the Father's will. When you read at the beginning of verse 24, I desire. Don't don't get this idea that that Jesus' prayer amounts to some some, some sort of wishful thinking. Like, I really hope they're going to make it. We'll see. No, his resolve to pray this way is the direct result of his Father willing this way. They are one in purpose and mission. The Father is going to answer Jesus' prayer. And then on top of that, we get verse 26, saying, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known. That the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. I will continue to make it known. In other words, I will continue to make it known so that all this will become true. Now some think this is referring to the way Jesus will make God's name known in the cross. Right? Just a few hours away. Others have thought he's referring to the coming ministry of the Holy Spirit. Uh, who will reveal God to the church. I don't see why we have to choose between the two. Especially since the two are so interrelated and bound up together in John's gospel. To see Jesus glorified in the cross, resurrection, and ascension is for the Spirit to come and apply all of that work. The point is that Jesus will do everything necessary in His cross... And in the ministry of the Spirit, remember, for the Spirit to come is for Jesus to come and dwell in us. Jesus will do everything necessary in His cross and in the ministry of the Spirit to get us to glory. He will be clothed with shame if it means clothing us with honor. He will drink the cup of God's wrath if it means giving us drink of living water. He will be buried with the dead if it means giving us eternal life. He will be baptized with the fires of judgment if it means baptizing us with the life of the Holy Spirit. The idea is this. Jesus refuses to return to his unveiled glory without bringing the church with him. 
Jesus refuses to return to his unveiled glory without bringing the church with him. I will continue to make it known. Father, Son, and Spirit, they are resolved to bring all of God's church into the presence of Jesus. So, what does all this mean for the present? Because this is where we're living by faith. We're not beholding by sight yet. What does all this mean for the present? Maybe a few points to consider. I'm not going to exhaust this at all. But first of all, I want to take us back to the beginning of what I said. That if you're a believer this morning, uh, the darkness of your sin and perhaps the darkness of your circumstances. Some of you have been under trial for a long time. This darkness does not determine the trajectory of your life. If you're trusting in Jesus, the darkness of sin, death, and the devil does not determine your future. Jesus does. And he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. This is his will for you, that you make it to glory. Some of you, your, your heart has grown weak in the battle against sin. Uh, you're, you're tired of fighting it again and again. You keep experiencing the same temptations and you wonder if they'll ever let up. Some of you have even started talking like this. Well, I guess I'm just always going to be struggling with this. I guess I'll just always have this problem with anger and lust and guilt. I guess I'm always going to be carrying this shame I've had since high school and college. And based on Jesus' prayer here, I just want to say, no, you won't. With all the pastoral gentleness I can. No, you won't. That's not true. Jesus is stronger than that. His blood is more powerful than that. His work is more comprehensive than that in you. Don't buy into the lie that you're just always going to be this way. When you believe in Jesus, you're put on a different trajectory than the world has. And that trajectory lands you in glory with Him in His presence. And you know what happens there? This, you read it earlier, 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. We shall be like Him. Why? Because we shall see Him as He is. That's where you're heading. Some of you deal with depression. It follows you around like a hound. Even on days when you find joy in the Lord, you can't help but wonder if the depression's going to find you again. Be encouraged by Jesus' prayer. This depression has an end. It cannot follow you into Jesus' presence because in Jesus' presence there is only fullness of joy. Love and peace. And that's where you're going, into arms that shield you from oppression forever. We're all tempted in some way by the powers of darkness. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, First Peter says. Neither he 
nor any other adversary of ours will follow us into Jesus' glory. They can't. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. And fire goes before him and consumes his foes on every side. To be ushered into the presence of Jesus is to be ushered into his perfect protection and victory over evil forever. All your enemies will fall flat in the presence of Jesus Christ, the Almighty God. So I pray that Jesus' prayer will give you all the more wherewithal to fight the good fight. To take hold of eternal life. To to run to what's already yours. He's at work in you both to will and to do. Therefore, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Don't waste your thoughts on the present darkness. It's not going to last much longer, folks. Salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Take every thought captive for Christ's sake so that the glory you now behold by faith will become yours by sight. Something else to consider as you work out your salvation. Be sure your motivations stay stay centered on Jesus' glory. It's the enjoyment of His glory that we're heading toward. And and so that should inform the way we pursue Christ-likeness now. I appreciate these uh, these probing questions from John Piper's book, uh, God is the Gospel. Uh, you can find that in the book nook if, you're, if you want to read a copy. These are questions to uh, evaluate the root of your motivation for pursuing Christ's likeness. Listen, listen to some of these that he gives. <clears throat> Do you want to be strong like Christ so you will be admired as strong? Or so that you can defeat every adversary that would entice you to settle for any pleasure less than admiring the strongest person in the universe, Jesus Christ. Do you want to be wise like Christ so you will be admired as wise and intelligent? Or so that you can discern and admire the one who is most truly wise Do you want to be holy like Christ so that you can be admired as holy? Or so that you can be free from all unholy inhibitions that keep you from seeing and savoring the holiness of Christ? Do you want to be loving like Christ so that you will be admired as as a loving person? Or so that you will enjoy extending to others even in suffering the all-satisfying love of Christ. These questions hit right at the heart of our Christian walk. Why we do what we do. Why we want the changes that we want. Do we want this specific sin out of our lives just so that we can move on to other things just without the guilt? Or do we want this specific sin out of our lives so that we can enjoy more of Jesus? 
Is the point of your Bible study so that you can be on top of your game and debates with others? Or is the point of Bible study to thrill your needy, thrill your needy soul with an all-sufficient Savior? Because that's ultimately the point of our conformity to Christ. That's where we're heading as believers. That's where our sanctification will land. Seeing Jesus' glory as our supreme delight. So let's be sure that the center of our future delight stays the center of our present delight, namely the glory of Christ. He is our highest good in everything. He is why we do what we do. Another way this, uh, this may intersect with our present lives as a church body, encourage each other with the future in Jesus' glory. I don't, think we, I, don't, I don't think we think about the future enough as a church. How bad do you want each other to enjoy Jesus' glory? Are you helping your brothers and sisters behold Him by faith now that they might be able to behold Him by sight later? He is the ultimate gift you can give to anybody in this church and anybody in this world. He hasn't revealed these things to us simply to enjoy by our lonesome. It was compelling enough for John to write a gospel. Get this message out to the world. He's revealed these things to us so that we share them with others. I need brothers to come and tell me when I've lost sight of the future in Jesus' glory as a pastor, as a husband, as a friend. I need someone to pick me up by the collar and show me the glorious end when I'm stuck in the cloudy present. Several months ago, I remember getting a, a few emails that, for reasons I could not discern at the time, sort of sent me on this downward spiral into self pity and cynicism and. I was just disheartened and joyless. So I call up Travis Bennett. I tell him I'm not well. I need a brother to speak into my life. So he meets me the next morning about 6 o'clock at the Denny's. And the first 15 minutes, he just sat there and talked about heaven as a place of love. This is where the Lord's taking us. Look at how Jesus' glory will reflect through every thought and deed of every person in the kingdom. He's taking all of his elect there. And that was enough to free my soul from doubting castle and urge me on in the walk. I needed a vision of God's end for his people. For why my love should endure. For why I should keep laboring for the gospel. For why I shouldn't throw in the towel. Travis did for me, as Paul tells the Thessalonians to do. Encourage one another with these things. And in that context, he's pointing them to the end. Jesus' return. The resurrection. Encourage each other with these words. So how will you encourage one another with these words? How will you encourage each other with the certainty of Jesus' prayer for his church. Some of us get so, get so bogged down sometimes because all we're looking at is the church now instead of the church future. How will you help each other see the end 
and keep seeing the end as you endure the present. That's what Jesus is doing as he prays for his disciples. And speaking of prayer, shouldn't this future in Jesus, his presence, give us all the more reason to cry, Come, Lord Jesus. For the right reasons, of course. If you're anything like me, the bulk of the time we make that prayer, Come, Lord Jesus, it's because we want immediate escape from the pain and suffering of this world, right? I remember making this prayer on exam days in college. Right? Get me out of this. You'd be really great if you came back now. It wasn't a prayer rooted in any desire to see Jesus. It was just a prayer for escape. Now don't get me wrong. The pain and suffering of this world should move us to cry for God's kingdom to come. Maybe not the pain of an exam. Maybe not that. But the real pain from injustice and sorrow over sin and hatred for evil, all this should move us to pray for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We should want Jesus to put the world to rights and to judge our enemies and to to pray for it to be done. We should say, come Lord Jesus in this sense, but that's not all we should want. Or even the main thing we should want in our prayer Come, Lord Jesus. The main thing we should want in come, Lord Jesus, is Jesus himself. To see the unveiled splendor of our Savior King who still carries the wounds it took to bring us into his glorious presence. This is our cry. Come, Lord Jesus. And so to that end, Ben, would you come close us in prayer?